Well, as we end out the last week of the year, we're going to air two interviews from our weekday FS Insider podcast that ran a couple of months ago in October. The first is with Aaron Param out of the UK, head of asset allocation at Variant Perception, where he discusses the 6-12 to month outlook for the stock market based on liquidity measures and leading economic indicators. Aaron also discusses the longer-term 2-3 to year outlook, where they have a high conviction call on energy and provide some really good insights on how they expect this area to perform in the midst of a potential recession in 2023. After Aaron, Nick Pardini, founder of Davos Macro Research, explains how California acts as a leading indicator in the era of hard choices ahead. Nick discusses the fascinating parallels between Michigan in the 1960s and California today, the possibility of seeing defaults based on demographic patterns of migration in and out of the state, and how this is part of a larger structural trend affecting not just California, but wider parts of the U.S., including many other parts of the globe when it comes to rising borrowing costs, inflation, and demographic trends. These are definitely two interviews you don't want to miss that we really enjoyed on FS Insider this year. As always, if you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday FS Insider podcast airing three days during the week, just go to financialsense.com and hit where it says subscribe. Insider, a premium edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. Today's host is Senior Editor Chris Sheridan. Joining us on the show today is Aaron Pram. He's at Variant Perception. And Aaron, I know the last time we spoke with you, you talked about how the growth and liquidity indicators you track were still pointing down and the checklist for a market bottom was far from complete. That was months back. And of course, that is what we've seen. We've seen the market now break to new lows from that point. What are your liquidity indicators saying currently? Two of our favorite liquidity indicators are excess liquidity and uh, what we call our business cycle financing index. Today, when we're looking at excess liquidity, it's at multi-decade lows. It tells us that there isn't really a safety net for risk assets. And we saw this really through in kind of slow motion at the start of the year. We saw excess liquidity really start to, to turn lower and it's just kept getting lower since. And the second liquidity indicator is BCFI, a business cycle financing index, where how many central banks across the world are hiking. And, you know, as we've seen, we've seen this kind of global synchronized hiking cycle. It means that the liquidity impulse across the world has flipped negative and very sharply negative. So, you know, taking those two liquidity indicators together, it tells us that this is a really poor environment to take risk on a six to 12 month horizon, which is typically the horizon with which these liquidity indicators work. And subsequently, our read on growth conditions as well, which liquidity is a critical component of, it means that also our growth outlook is negative as well. And you guys have been for all year pointing to how the leading economic indicators were either decelerating or pointing down, as well as the liquidity indicators, which you just touched upon now. And again, as you said, you're seeing narrow money growth. It's starting to collapse. Excess liquidity is at multi-decade lows. So that is a poor environment for risk assets. So, I mean, your indicators have been spot on in terms of basically signaling, are we in a place where you want to be defensive or do you want to be taking risk? And you've been saying, you know, all along for this year that, you know, liquidity and leading economic indicators are turning down. So that's still the message currently, it sounds like. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think for us to, you know, if we were to invert the question and think about what would make us bullish, I find it very difficult to put together a, a coherent case for that beyond the fact that, you know, everyone else is bearish, right? Um, you know, we've seen that play out in some of our tactical tools where we've seen things like flows, positioning data, leans bearish, and so suggests that there is that potential for uh, another bear market rally. But, you know, again, taking a step back, looking at the wider six to 12 month view, we cannot turn bullish really until we see an upturn in some of these liquidity indicators. Since the start of the year as well, we said that, you know, China could perhaps bail out the rest of the world as they kind of um, tighten their policy. Uh, but again, our China leading indicator is is also very, very negative. You know, the way I'd frame it is that on that six to 12 month horizon, we, we're we just letting the data play out. We're still underweight risk. Uh, we appreciate that prices have corrected a fair amount, but that's not to say that they can't go any lower. And I think one of the ways that we're also thinking about this as well and thinking more about market expectations is, you know, we're looking at um, analysts' earnings forecasts for next year, right? And, you know, I think 2023, the whole year for the S&P, I think the the EPS growth right now is something like 8 or 9%. To me, anyway, that's, that's pretty optimistic. And, you know, we've got our own leads on trailing 12 months earnings growth for the S&P. And, you know, they're consistent with, growth at the re in the region of minus 20 to 30 percent right so that's a crazy divergence and so it tells me that you know if we do head into this kind of recessionary environment if we do see our recession signal trigger this will be kind of the the catalyst for the next leg lower in equity prices um and that's i think that's quite an important point to make chris as well is that you know earnings recessions typically don't matter so much unless they're accompanied by an economy-wide recession, right? So over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, what we've seen is that you, you do sometimes see these earnings recessions, analysts revise down their forecasts, but actually it tends to be a good contrarian buying signal um, if it's not accompanied by an economy-wide recession. But, you know, as we're seeing it right now, um, you know, where earnings are today and the fact that recession risks are rising, it's telling us that, um, you know, it makes total sense to stay underweight risk, um, you know, overweight cash, and uh, to some extent starting to really buy, buy dips in uh, long-dated treasuries. In that case, where do you see some of the best opportunities in the market currently? For equities, you know, this kind of falls back to our structural framework, really, which is, you know, looking at the two to three-year horizon. So for for people, the lucky people that are able to ignore the day-to-day -day moves, I think this is a, in a very good environment to start thinking about deploying some cash into these really powerful structural themes. And Chris, last time we spoke, I think we, we mentioned the fact that commodities and the energy sector still looked very supportive on that capital cycle front. Um, you know, the fact that miners, um, you know, energy producers they're still not really spending you know we we're tracking uh, effectively every single listed company we're tracking their capex um, relative to their asset base we're tracking depreciation we're tracking um, you know their returns on capital and these variables together gives us a really good sense of whether or not the industry 
is capital starved. And this is really the environment where you see capital starvation to, to bet on these really powerful two to three year outperformance trends. And so the way I see it with, uh, with energy, it's a, it's a really good environment to, to be buying dips, playing for that structural two to three year horizon where we've hardly seen any spending. And looking at company transcripts as well, a lot of the oil field services um, companies in particular, which you know, if we do see a, a capex response from the upstream guys, that should translate to really good economics for the you know the the oil field services that that help support the the upstream capex. And a lot of the you know Schlumberger, they you know they were saying that you know investors are too pessimistic right now. Um, they should start to really believe the fact that margin expansion is is here to continue, and we're really in the early innings of this. And so when we're seeing that backed by our capital cycle data, to us, it still tells us that energy is a really good place to, to bet on um, on that two to three year horizon view. One of the big pushbacks to that thesis, and, and again, like you pointed out, you know, you've been talking about a super cycle in commodities is something we've spoken with you many times in the past. And as you said last time, you believe that we're seeing an intermission in the super cycle, given just how fast commodities had moved off of their lows. So it sounds like you're still sticking to that idea that we're just in this intermission phase. You want to be buying the dips on energy and perhaps in the commodity space more broadly. What about the risk of recession? Where does that factor into your outlook for commodities? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think this is really where we um, we try to separate out between, you know, the the industrials, uh, the ags and, you know, precious metals and then energy. Um, because I think the way that we're seeing it, and you're totally right, in, in a recessionary scenario, the industrials tend to get hammered, right? Where classic liquidity growth indicators do a really, really good job of leading industrial prices lower. And we've kind of seen that already play out this year, you know, copper and aluminium prices, you know, 30, 40% off their highs. Um, you know, back when we flagged it in, uh, I think it was April, May, the the, the intermission uh, thesis. When we're thinking more about kind of the bull case and when to increase allocations again, because, you know, as I mentioned, the supply side still looks quite favorable. A lot of miners haven't been spending loads. So we still think that the industrial side of things is going to be in a, in a effectively a structural deficit. Um, so thinking more about when you increase allocations, I think we we have to remember, you know, what are the key catalysts, what are the key leads for industrial prices to rally? And it really is um, Chinese leading data. It's, you know, things like liquidity, where until we see that upturn, it doesn't really make sense to aggressively buy right now, uh, just because prices are a bit lower than what they were. Um, and then doubly for, you know, for that US recession scenario, if we do see that happen, there'll be another hurdle to clear until we see the recession kind of play out and we see the uh, the, the lower low occur. However, when we, when we think of energy, I think this is very different because uh, we do see precedent for, for energy prices to rally through a recession, right? And particularly when energy prices cause the recession, which is what we saw in 1973, which, you know, we saw in 1980 energy prices rallied through that and you know something similar could play out today and you know we've done a, a lot of work thinking about you know the fact that we've got this effectively a, a whole new policy mix that's starting to really impact how you invest in energy where we wanted to understand effectively help investors handicap 
the risks from regulation. So, you know, one of the lessons that we've learned from, you know, these, you know, quote unquote, sinful commodities, things like alcohol prohibition, nuclear, coal, tobacco, the lessons we've learned is actually that these sinful commodities and their producers are actually still very investable through this regulatory uncertainty. And the second thing is that actually regulation doesn't really tend to stick, particularly when a recession occurs, right? So things like prohibition, they were repealed during the Great Depression. And that's when you see public support start to turn in favor of creating jobs. And, um, you know, we've seen it play out somewhat in nuclear where public support is turning. And so it tells us that, you know, actually, there is precedent for kind of the underlying thesis to, to remain and for these companies and their commodities to effectively rally through this period of intense uncertainty. And, you know, coupled with the fact that, you know, I'm here in, uh, in the UK, where um, the government is trying to uh, cap energy bills uh, at a huge, huge cost to the government, which is effectively a form of demand construction, right? Um, you know, typically in a recession, you, you should allow for the demand destruction for, you know, prices to naturally adjust lower as, you know, demand starts to really pair back. But, you know, right now we're seeing absolutely no incentive to cut your energy consumption at all. So, you know, we've got that demand constructed backdrop for energy at the same time we've got intense supply constraints. Marrying those two together, it tells us that even if we do get the global recession scenario, it still makes a lot of sense to to buy and to hold these two to three year capital cycle themes with uh, with energy. Your tactical shorter term indicators are pointing towards a potential year end bear market rally. That's over the one to three month time horizon. However, looking out over the longer term, as you said, I mean, if we consider six to twelve month view, the leading indicators you follow are still bearish. As you said, narrow money growth is starting to collapse and excess liquidity is at multi-decade lows. So the longer term horizon is still bearish. When it comes to the two to three year time horizon at the capital cycle, as you just laid out, uh, there's still a fairly strong thesis behind investing in the commodity space. Energy, it sounds like, is the place where you're particularly focused and as you mentioned today, you know, you would be saying to buy the dips on energy, use those as opportunities to increase your exposure to energy. And even if we do see a recession, we can still see commodities and energy rally in the midst of a recession as well. Does that accurately summarize what we spoke about today? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the final point to make, Chris, and I think we, we mentioned this last time is um what we need to see for uh, an equity market bottom, you know, we've done all the painful work of looking through all of the historical equity market bottoms. And it gives us a sense of, you know, where are we in that process today, right, relative to these market bottoms in the past, because, you know, as we are today, you know, S&P, you know, did try to make a new low, and it's kind of rallied off that. Um, you know, is is that the, the low for uh, for this cycle? And the short answer is, it's very unlikely because the critical components that we need to see for, for a sustainable market bottom um, is actually Fed monetary easing. So it's not even the Fed stopping its hiking cycle. It's actually a positive liquidity response in the, in the economy. And the second component really is curve steepening. And that really confirms that the, uh, that the Fed has, you know, pivoted dovishly and that it, it it effectively confirms that the liquidity response can help 
then support equity prices from there. And, you know, the way we see it today is that if this is the market low, it may well be. Um, it's not necessarily the time to buy equities, right? And I think, you know, we'd be very comfortable buying 20, 30% off the lows if we saw our market bottoms checklist trigger, if we saw the signs of monetary policy easing and uh, and yield curve steepening. I think these are the two most critical components that we've seen throughout equity market bottoms. You know, other things like, you know, effectively like looking at long-term RSIs, um, you know, looking at consumer expectations, uh, consumer confidence, these kind of things. These are all other signposts, which, you know, we to some extent we've seen. I think it's important, it's critically important not to lose sight of that liquidity, positive liquidity response. And I think until we see that, it's very unlikely we'll turn bullish from these levels. Yeah, it's a very good point. We're not even close to the point of talking about easing yet. So we're we're just talking about not raising rates as fast, going from 75 basis points to 50 basis points. So the conversation is very, very far away from at the point of actually easing. We have seen that, you know, with the Bank of Eng- England doing an emergency response, uh, quantitative easing, but uh, that's just really one bank uh, now at this point. So we would need to see this not just with the Fed, but with a much wider uh, breadth of central banks. And as you said, I mean, when you look at your business cycle financing index, which tracks how many central banks are hiking, that's still the trajectory. So um, it all aligns with, as you said, we don't see that checklist for a sustainable market bottom yet. And all these things, the charts, the data, you cover extensively in your reports. So with that said, how can our listeners get their hands on your research? For listeners and readers, they can um, go on variantperception.com. We have some samples there for, for people to look at. Um, and also we've got a Substack that gives some snippets of what we're writing about. So hopefully for the clients that find our, our pieces useful, they can just um, reach out to us at variantperception.com. So once again, that's variantperception.com and then also the Substack blog.variantperception.com. And you can enter in your email and subscribe to receive those reports and also get in contact with them as well to get access to their research on a regular basis, which I would highly encourage all of you to do so. Well, Aaron, it was a pleasure to speak with you on our show. Again, keep up the great work and we look forward to speaking with you in another several months. Thanks very much, Chris. Look forward to speaking again. Joining us on the show today is Nick Pardini. He's the founder of Davos Macro Research. So Nick, you wrote a very interesting piece. It's called The Era of Hard Choices. And the markets have just been tossed to and fro with the winds of Fed monetary policy, every inflation print, COVID lockdowns in China. There's a lot going on. So it's really important to have some of these big themes that you can look at and understand what's driving the primary trend of the market long term. Let's talk about what you see as the era of hard choices when we think about investing for a big term macro framework. Yeah, I mean, except the exception of 2008, basically the period from the end of the Cold War to about 2015 is historically very low in terms of volatility, both in terms of markets and in terms of policy decisions. But you had the compounding of real wages declining from 2000 to 2016 across all developed countries and across all levels of education. And the government tried to resolve this by replacing people's income from earnings through other means. 
like from 2000 to 2008, it was through the mortgage market and housing. And then from 2008 to 2016, it was alternative forms of credit, such as student loans and auto loans and private non-bank lending and personal loans, such as lending club and peer-to-peer. However, when you had rates reach a cyclical trough, I mean, they did end up going slightly lower in 2020, but the downtrend sort of petered out close to 2016. The game ran out. Basically, now from that point forward, any future consumption and investment choices by either governments, individuals, or businesses had hard trade-offs that had to be made. Say, for example, on an individual level, if your income is no longer going up and you have to make the choice between, say, going on more vacations or having another kid, there's drastic economic choices that will be made and structural consequences that are go throughout the global economy. The bottom line, though, in terms of what it means for market structure is that realized volatility has risen and has stayed elevated really since 2019. And I think it's going to stay high just due to the greater degree of both left and right tail events that are in the marketplace. Uh, the political climate will continue to favor protecting the elderly over younger taxpayers. And as a result, you're going to have inflation remain high until people in the ballot box decide, hey, look, it's too high for us to continue these policies to protect financial markets or to protect national pensions. And I think that's what's starting to happen with Powell's recent moves is that the government's starting to realize that they're Inflation is high enough that the a lot of the elected officials all throughout the Western world are going to lose their jobs because of it. Real interest rates needed to trend down to preserve existing momentum. And once they stopped doing that, the market broke down. And since I expect real interest rates to not make to make higher lows, then it's going to be a headwind for the market. And also developed market currencies outside the US dollar. Are going to structurally be weaker because those central banks have a lower threshold that they can rise rates without causing sovereign debt crises. So those are the the bigger picture implications of the era of hard choices. I want to see if we can relate this to something that you have been discussing as a longer term theme, putting these things into context of what we see in California, because here we have a major, major state in the US, larger than many countries in the world. It's got a massive, massive multi-billion dollar budget, again, bigger than many countries. And yet at the same time, it's carrying all this debt. It's also having some very hard choices to make. And it looks like the trajectory is not very favorable long-term for California. Can you tie some of these era of hard choices themes that you are discussing in the context of what we see happening in California. California is an interesting predicament because California has done similar to what happened to the Rust Belt in the 60s and the 70s is that they are pricing themselves out of competitiveness. Guess what the fourth biggest city in America was and the wealthiest city in GDP per capita in 1960? It was Detroit, Michigan. And Michigan was the wealthiest state in the union. It was also the most progressive state politically in the union, and it had the strongest amount of labor protections of any state in the union. Sounds like California. Like California today has all of those things now. And 
what happened that killed Detroit was that you were able to move out that manufacturing to either non-union states in the southern half of the country or offshore entirely. And that's how the auto companies stayed competitive. And I think technology companies are going to make a similar choice in California today. It's a lot easier to move a team of coders from San Francisco to Austin than it is to build a whole new factory in Georgia, South Carolina, or in China or Mexico. So it's going to be faster. And the thing is that if you look at the auto companies, their stock prices from 1970 to 2000, even as they were hollowing out the town and Michigan was suffering economically, their stocks did fine because they were, the car companies were able to maintain profits by adapting. And so you could see a world where big tech stocks still maintain their wealthy market caps but at the same time, the communities that these places are based in struggle as the employment is moved out to other locations. And is San Francisco also like Detroit? They both had over 25% of their employment in their core industry. In Detroit, it was auto manufacturing and in the Bay Area, software. The other thing that what makes this scary from a political level is that California disproportionately collect, relies on tax revenue from capital gains tax on technology companies, whether in the private markets or the public markets. So if you don't have the NASDAQ consistently going up every year and people selling their stock options, there's going to be possibly a big revenue crunch. And then just the cost of living being so high due to environmental regulations is has the same effect on keeping wages artificially high that unions did in the Midwest. Because if somebody's going to move to California from another state, they need to be paid a lot more, especially if they have a family and want to live outside a studio apartment. Yeah, it's so interesting here. And I want to just dive into this because I just recently, this is anecdotal, but you know, you and I, we both live in California. You're in Newport. I'm in San Diego. Uh, these are very nice areas, by the way. Um, but yeah. You know, I don't know about you. I have visited San Francisco many, many times. I have some friends that live there. It is a place that I love to visit. There's some beautiful areas around there. Uh, it is a place I would never, ever want to live, though. It's not a good place, like you said, you know, to live long-term to raise a family. You can do it. You can do it if you have the means. But yeah. there's a big homeless population, and it's getting worse, it, it seems. But the interesting thing is you're making this parallel between – what we saw in Detroit, a major bustling city, one of the largest, most successful cities in the U.S. and in the world, for that matter, uh, back in the, the 60s, right? A lot of heavy industry, high productivity, a lot of wealth being generated. And now we look what it is today. It's a shadow of itself dealing with lots of crime, homelessness. And we see a lot of that in places like San Francisco, in L.A. I mean, homeless encampments that are just growing and growing and getting bigger, uh, violence, drugs, lots of petty theft that you know they you can't even now charge for so that they just come in and rob what they want and leave. They know that no one's going to do anything. It's, it's terrible. It's, it's absolutely terrible. In this recent video that you had conducted with Chris Street, he had some really dire things to say about California. It doesn't sound like this is your base case scenario for what we could expect in terms of this. No, I'm a little bit more optimistic than Chris. Okay. Okay. So 
maybe can you tell us a little bit about what he is thinking we're going to see for California moving forward in this, again, era of hard choices that you're discussing and where you would say you think is perhaps a more realistic or uh, high probability route? He thinks that California is at risk of an outright default because of migration patterns, which there are some concerns. The people who are moving into California are mostly well-to-do retirees from other high-tax states, primarily New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. And the people who are moving out are those who are forming families. I'm in my 30s personally, and most of my friends who I grew up with in California have moved or seriously considering moving to other states such as Colorado, Washington, Texas, Florida, the Carolinas, and Georgia, because they want to be able to buy a big enough house to have a family and there are more fixed salaries. So they don't have the career upside to justify staying in California. And so you're having young families for the most part being the ones who are moving out and you have retirees are the ones who are moving in and you've seen California's, this is a quote from Chris, so I don't have the source on the statistics. So, And by the way, let me just jump in there real quick um, in case you already didn't say this, but Chris Street, he is the former Orange County treasurer. Yes. And he had uh, an inside view of the budget. And then he also took a look at California's finances as a whole. So he, he kind of has a really good in-depth view of California's finances and future. So he's making this kind of dire prediction about California. I just wanted to make sure that that was understood. So please go ahead. So like his argument is that he basically has cited a statistic, which I haven't been able to verify on my own yet, but I assume that it's true, is that California's unemployment rate cut in half since 2020, but its tax receipts are, de- are down from 2020. So what that means is that the people who are productive on the net are moving out of the state. And I think it's heel site that it's just an income-based thing, or I think it's just more retirees are moving in and people in their peak earnings and family formation years are moving out. If that combination risks having a revenue crunch just at the right time when you have a lot of pension obligations due with the state employees hitting retirement age, and then The other thing is on the real estate side too, is that a lot of the baby boomers who are the primary homeowners in the state, they're hitting the average mortality age starting in 2024. And if you have all these younger people moving out and starting families and building their lives in other places, what are they going to do with their parents' houses when they inherit them? My guess is sell them. And that has a whole nother layer of implications, especially if immigration doesn't come back up to pre-pandemic levels. So in some ways, would it be safe to say that California is kind of emblematic of some of these longer-term secular trends that we're seeing in the U.S. as a whole? And to a certain degree, I mean, these extend outside of the U.S. to global problems and problems that are being faced in other nations. Yeah, California is a leading indicator for developed markets, economy, and politics. Like California is always on the cutting edge of technology. It's on the cutting edge of innovation. Uh, People move to California to make things happen and do stuff, especially in the core industries that it has. And since it is a coastal state that is critical to trans-Pacific trade, it's very connected to the global economy. And California is seen as an example for other states to test some of the ideas that come out of California. 
And the Reagan revolution originally came from California. You had the environmentalist movement originally came from California. Banning non-compete clauses or labor originally came from California. So California is kind of a, a lot of modern fashions and technological innovations come from California. So usually so people need to look at California as a leading indicator for the rest of the country. Like those who are moving out of the state to escape California, you're just kicking the can, delaying the inevitable for five to 10 years at most. And another thing where we really see California taking the lead is in ESG renewable technology, right? So, yeah, I mean, we have been investing, many people and the way we've articulated on the show is that, you know, essentially California is very closely following in the footsteps of most of Europe, if not Germany, with heavy investments into not just renewable technology, but also in trying to move away from fossil fuels. So that's another place where we see California in the lead. Yeah. The thing is that it's able to adapt and have a lot of the worst of its impulses one way or the other kept in check with being part of the United States, whereas other countries, maybe in Europe and Asia, will take some of California's not so good ideas and take them to extremes a lot quicker because they don't have the checks and balances of a federal system. Mm, that's a good point. We've definitely been talking a lot about how this exacerbates inflation, right? Fossil fuels are a very cheap and efficient form of energy, right? There's some, there's costs and benefits. There's no perfect solution, as Thomas Sowell put it. There's only trade-offs. Uh, and so we're seeing some of those trade-offs here in California. Um, we've also tried to move away from nuclear power. There has been some efforts to keep that al- keep that alive, at least for the time being. But, you know, I mean, they're shutting off natural gas, trying to really move away as much as possible from using, you know, fossil fuel or internal combustion engine vehicles by, I believe, the uh, date is 2035 that Newsom has put out there, banning the sale of all gas-motored, like, lawn equipment or lawnmowers or blowers. Terrible idea, by the way. I don't know if you've compared the difference between uh, a gas-powered lawnmower and an electric lawnmower. I mean, extremely inefficient. Uh, it's it's terrible. It's terrible. It makes no sense. But again, <laughs> we live in California, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on how that's – it seems to be driving out business as well. Well, I think that it actually surprisingly Newsom has done something somewhat positive in taking the lead in bringing back nuclear power or at least stopping it from being shut down like you if you really want to be a post fossil fuel state nuclear power is going to have to be a component of it and i think a lot of hesitance to that comes from fears generated from the three mile island incident in the the 1970s and fukushima back in 2011 2012 and that's how the countries in europe who don't have energy problems like france have been able to get by because they have a lot of nuclear power. So that's one thing I think that's going to come out of this. The other thing is I think California is going to have to bite the bullet and eventually embrace desalination. There are some parts of the state, such as in Huntington Beach and in San Diego, that they have built desalination plants that are ready to be used, but the state government is not allowing it due to environmental lawsuits and regulatory challenges. But if you want to be able to provide enough water for people to live a first world standard of living in this state, you need to use desalination. It's how Israel, which is in basically a coastal desert, has been able to be a 
leading producer in a lot of different categories of produce and also have been able to keep everybody hydrated in that part of the world. So I think California's next step is they're going to have to take the lead on desalination technology to solve this. I think a lot of California's problems when it comes to water or energy or political ones that I eventually I think will be solved if things get bad enough or prices get high enough to force that matter. So I'm a little bit, I'm not as concerned about like the whole state running out of water or running out of energy. I think that those are political issues that will be solved if the pain is high enough. Okay. Now, Chris Street, he's saying that he thinks California is going to go into default. And he talked about historically how we've seen a number of panics and crashes throughout California's history. It's not like these things are uncommon and we're building up to that. Your view is that we should accept, it sounds like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but we should expect to continue to see people migrating out, heavy industry and businesses leaving in a manner similar to what we saw with Detroit many years back, that that is kind of a long-term trajectory. Is is that about what you're thinking we should see? Yeah, I think the West Coast trajectory is similar to the Rust Belt. I don't, I think San Francisco has the most concentration in a single industry, kind of like how Detroit had the most concentration in a single industry. Whereas I think some of these other West Coast cities will do relatively better, but face similar problems. Like I think LA's worst case scenario is not Detroit. It's more like Chicago. Chicago is still one of the most important cities in the world. It's the third biggest metropolitan area in America and is the major hub of that region, the Midwest. But it's still outside of a few rough neighborhoods, a very nice place to visit. The thing is, is that Chicago is far from its terms of relative power and standing in the world and importance to the global economy, far below where it was, say, in 1970. I think that California will probably see some of the harder choices made first. And really, I think the future of the United States will be broadly seen by what happens in California, what happens in Texas, and what happens in Florida. You know, Nick, another thing that your guest, Chris Street, had said that I thought was really interesting is he talked about entertainment industry, um, just how much funds were uh, going into Hollywood, if you want to think, you know, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, L.A., that whole area investing into into you know production of many of these things. Big tech is now very much involved in a lot of the production process of films, of TV. Yeah. What Chris mentions is the three economic drivers of California since 1970 were entertainment, technology, and international trade with Asia. And then IAD real estate is the fourth one. So those are the four drivers of California's economy from 1970 to present. All four of those are now kind of trending the wrong direction. Uh, tech valuations are going down due to higher interest rates. And as a result of that, tech companies are now have to make hard choices like, I actually need to make a profit now. And what steps will tech companies do to actually make a profit versus just relying on infinite free money from venture capitalists and investors who can't get returns from traditionally safe assets, but now they can get returns from things such as treasury bonds. The, the demand for moonshot growth and venture capital has gone down and valuations of long duration assets, which big tech is really the longest of long duration is down. So now investors are going to want to demand profits and dividends from these companies. And the way that they're going to get them is by relocating 
workers to cheaper places. Like this is a report I did for my research. There's nothing really didn't really mention this in the Chris interview is that if you look at the average wages for software engineers and UX designers by country, the US, the median American UX designer or software engineer makes more than double than they do in countries such as Canada, Britain, and Australia and continental Europe. Those countries have similar levels of economic development and collective education as the United States. So why are they paid so much less? Part of it has to do with regulation and the way that workers get more vacation time and other benefits. But a lot of it is also driven by that American tech companies priced a very high premium on geographic proximity to their headquarters on the West Coast of North America. However, Work Remote has been able to, for the most part, maintain current operations and the wage scale, especially with how strong the US dollar is right now, is so wide. Why wouldn't it make sense for these companies to have the bulk of their new employment or transfer their employment to places with much lower wages with the same level of skills? This isn't like outsourcing to an emerging market country where the people just don't have the credibility or the education to do these type of jobs. These are other prosperous developed market economies who have young people with the skills in tech and college degrees from renowned universities around the world. So I think that is an example of a hard choice. Like, do I keep my staff in California? Do I relocate them to other parts of the US? Or do I even outsource white collar labor? I think that in the 2000s, and early 2010s, the trend was outsourcing blue-collar labor to emerging markets for wage advantages. But now in the digital world, it's a lot more effective to outsource white-collar labor to other countries in the developed economy who have weak currencies now versus the U.S. dollar. And it's interesting because I know someone who has done exactly that. He started a technology startup in San Francisco, uh, very successful. And they started recruiting a lot of their employees from Ukraine and Portugal and away from San Francisco, Silicon Valley, like you said, because wages were way cheaper. Uh, their work ethic was great. And, um, you know, there wasn't even a language barrier because all, many of them spoke English as well. So it made it very easy to do. Uh, this was prior to the Russia-Ukraine war, by the way. So a lot of their workforce did get displaced, unfortunately, by that war. But, you know, that's exact sample of there's a company, my own friend did the exact the same thing, Ukraine, Portugal, parts of Europe. And they're able to save a lot of money, but, you know, maintain their productivity at the same time. And Going back to your point earlier, if you think about Detroit, you know, moving an entire factory or warehouse from one location to another, that's difficult. You have to dismantle it and then you have to rebuild a whole new one. So that's a slow process. And we did see Detroit get to where it is today uh, from its heyday back in the 60s. That took decades. In this case, what you're talking about is this something that can take place very fast because you can outsource people digitally overnight. Yeah, I think the outsourcing of white collar labor and the narrowing gap between pay between blue collar and white collar work is a real era of hard choices issue. I think you have fundamentally you have people say for example the HVAC contractor who makes $150,000 a year but didn't go to college making more than say a a blogger or a journalist working for a major media outlet making 70 to $80,000 a year 
but the latter has a lot more social status than the former. And I think that is the root of a lot of social tensions in many of these countries. And so like, are people going to make the hard choices of not pursuing a college education because the pay gap between those who don't go to college and those who do narrows? That's another hard choice. And that has a lot of macroeconomic implications and affects a lot of companies in and outside the education sector. And then the other thing is like family formation. If wages aren't high enough to have kids, people are going to have smaller and smaller family sizes. And what does that mean for the future of viability of certain pay-as-you-go um, retirement schemes throughout the West or the financial markets where it requires more investors a lot in times to contribute than um, retirees selling their stock? There, there's a lot of implications to these things. And I think the key lesson from this interview is you should look at where are the hard choices coming from? And based on how you think those hard choices are going to be made, and I'm trying to mention non-political ones just because those are the ones that are less paid attention. Like everybody knows about what's going to happen in an election. So volatility and the vol service in the options market and the prices in the most affected sectors and asset classes in a given election or political decision are going to be well prepared and price that in. Whereas these more individual business decisions and private individual decisions are the ones that I think offer them more alpha because they're not being as closely paid attention to, particularly if they're a decision that may be controversial to talk about a cocktail party. So as we discussed with one of our prior guests, I mean, Germany is really a leading indicator for what we see in Europe because Germany is the largest economy in Europe. A lot of what happens in Germany in terms of its growth is going to have major ripple effects on the rest of Europe. And they were also the ones that became the most dependent upon foreign oil and gas from Russia, of course, uh, because of their really aggressive move into ESG. California is following right in those footsteps and in a like manner is also a leading indicator for the rest of the U.S. And a lot of what California does, whether it succeeds or fails, is going to dictate in many cases what other states do as well. So in this era of hard choices, you're looking at California as a leading indicator. On that note, what do you think we should expect in terms of timing for how these things should be playing out? I mean, are you looking at some imminent events to take place? Any thoughts on that? For California, it's tricky because I thought a lot of this stuff would have played out back in 08, but the private sector and the technology industry was able to develop the Web 2.0 infrastructure, which saved California for a decade. So something like that could come about. Um, the next great innovation out there could save California for all I know. But in terms of like my best guess on when these things play out is if you have two to three down years in a row in the NASDAQ, that's when you'll start to see real consequences. As for the country as a whole, uh, it really just depends on how much conviction the Fed has in doing what it needs to be done to keep inflation in check. Historically, when you have inflation above 5%, you need to solve that by having Fed funds rate be above the rate of inflation. Without that, 
you have you can have negative still real rates and people are still being paid on the net in inflation adjusted terms to speculate or to bid up asset prices and the biggest component of inflation is not energy it's not food those just make headlines because they tend to move the fastest and are visible in our price action the futures market it is real estate and housing and the demand for housing from an investor or speculative perspective is highly correlated to real interest rates. If you have positive real interest rates in the bond market, it's a lot less attractive to buy a rental property that has the same net cap yield as what you get paid on a bond because the bond, there's no work involved with it, being a landlord or servicing costs or anything like that. So I think that if the Fed does the right thing and keeps interest rates high enough to really let inflation come down and the fiscal policy is not too stimulative to counter that, then it could set up for a very bright future for the next several decades, especially as demographic factors ease off the the employment shortages we have now, which I just think are a temporary disruption due to retirees leaving the workforce but demanding the same amount of goods and services and the next generation being smaller. However, as the baby boom demographic just passes through history, that will level out and it won't really be an issue anymore. The other thing is like, say if the Fed doesn't do the right thing and they make the same mistake the 70s did is whenever basically inflation, I mean, real interest rates got to zero and the economy started to slow down, the Fed would cut. And by doing that, they just stoked up the next round of inflation. And they had to do this three or four cycles throughout the 70s until Volcker raised rates well into positive real territory for a while to kill it. So I think the real rubber meets the road. It will be in 2023 because that's when the next round of fiscal stimulus is going to start to really show up in the market, whether it's through these energy bailout bills or price caps on power bills that you're going to see in Europe or the student loan bailout taking full effect in the US or China's various stimulus projects that we're hearing about in the news. Those will all start to really impact the economy, I'd say, in the first quarter of 23. And all things equal, those would be inflationary, if, especially if monetary policy ever starts to pivot around that point. So that's kind of what I'm looking at is one Will the Fed hold rates high enough to keep housing costs in check? And two, how will this next round of fiscal stimulus that's going to hit markets in 2023 impact the inflation trajectory? The other thing to mention is that inflation often does is that it it buffers the downside tail in markets. Like in a lower inflation economy, you can see corrections on the S&P of 45 to 50% or more. But if you have 8.5% inflation, to have the same real decline, the market only needs to go down 20 to 30% instead of 30 to 40%. So I think you could, even if the market the economy is worse than say what happened in 2001 when the S&P went down 48%, and 2001 was a pretty mild recession, the market could go down less because a lot of those losses are just being imputed through inflation. Like the drawdowns in the 70s 
even though the economy was worse in the 70s than in the 2000s, uh, were a lot less because inflation muted a lot of those losses, at least on paper. That's a good point. Well, we have been speaking with Nick Pardini. Again, he's the founder of Davos Macro Research, an investment research firm specializing in global macro investment analysis out of Newport Beach, California. Nick, you produce a large range of different work, reports, uh, analysis. Uh, We talked about the YouTube interview that you had just done with the former Orange County treasurer, Chris Steele. Again, I'm going to link out to that so that uh, many of you can refer to that if you are interested in a perhaps more dire outcome for California, as he is predicting, and a number of other things that we discussed today. But with that said, what would be the best way for our listeners to access and follow more of your research? Uh, There's two ways you can do that. For my more general ideas, you could check out my YouTube channel, Analyzing Finance with Nick. I recommend that you guys subscribe. I look forward to and comment. I look forward to continuing the conversation there. Uh, For my research, I have the Davos Macro uh, Quick Takes and Options Corner, which is kind of the summary of the institutional research I do for large institutional clients that you guys could subscribe to. There's a link that will be in the show notes of this podcast that you can find me there as well. So either through my research platforms or through YouTube are the best ways to learn more about what I do. Perfect. All right. And again, we'll have links to all that in the show notes section where this interview is located on Financial Sense. So Nick, it was a pleasure to speak with you on our show and we definitely look forward to having you on in the future. If you have any questions or feedback on what we discussed today, or if you'd like to get in touch with us about our asset management or financial planning services, you can do so by going to financialsense.com and clicking where it says contact us. As always, don't forget to spread the word about FS Insider with your friends and family and share our podcast on all of your social media channels. For FS Insider, I'm Chris Sheridan. Thanks for listening. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk